morning's reading comes from Psalms, Psalms 27, verses 1 through 14. It can be found in your pew Bibles on page 393. The Lord is my light and my salvation, so why should I be afraid? The Lord is my fortress, protecting me from danger, so why should I tremble? When evil people come to devour me, when my enemies and foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though a mighty army surrounds me, my heart will not be afraid. Even when I am attacked, I will remain confident. The one thing I ask of the Lord, the thing I seek most, is to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, delighting in the Lord's perfections and mediating in his temple. For he will conceal me there when troubles come. He will hide me in his sanctuary. He will place me out of reach on a high rock. Then I will hold my head high above my enemies who surround me. At his sanctuary, I will offer sacrifices with shouts of joy, singing and praising the Lord with my music. Hear me as I pray, O Lord. Be merciful and answer me. My heart has heard you say, come and talk with me. And my heart responds, Lord, I am coming. Do not turn your back on me. Do not reject your servant in anger. You have always been my helper. Don't leave me now. Don't abandon me, O God of my salvation. Even if my father and my mother abandon me, the Lord will hold me close. Teach me how to live, O Lord. Lead me along the right path, for my enemies are waiting for me. Do not let me fall into their hands, for they accuse me of things I have never done. With every breath they threaten me with violence. Yet I am confident I will see the Lord's goodness while I am here in the land of the living. Wait patiently for the Lord. Be brave and courageous. Yes, wait patiently for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Many of you know and remember Charles Colson, who founded Prison Fellowship. Uh, one time he was down in Ecuador talking to the Ecuadorian president, whose name was Borja, and they were hoping to open up some prison fellowship ministries in the penitentiaries there in Ecuador. And they had sat down in two very luxurious chairs in a beautiful room, and they began to talk. But suddenly, President Borja just interrupted the conversation because he really wanted to tell Charles Colson about the time that he himself was imprisoned. Yes, the president of Ecuador, President Borja, had been imprisoned himself years before. He had been a part of the struggle for democracy in that country, and there had been a military crackdown, and without trial, he was thrown into prison, but not just to a prison, a cold dungeon without light, without windows. And for three days, he endured that solitary fear of total darkness. Think about that, three days of total darkness. And then suddenly, one day he heard a steel door open, and he heard someone walking in, creeping down uh, the other side of this large cell. And he heard this fellow fiddling with something up in the ceiling, and then the person crept back out and closed the door. And just a moment later, the lights came on in that room. Apparently someone at their own risk went in there and made the room suddenly blaze with light. And President Borja shared that with Charles Colson and said, from that moment on, my imprisonment had meaning because at least there was light and I could see. It gave me the courage to get through everything after that. That light calmed his fear, gave him hope, gave him courage. And I cannot help but move right to verse 1 of our passage this morning. 
In Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. This is the first time in Scripture that light is used as a metaphor for God and God's presence. Now, you know there are other uh, places where you find that. Many of the Advent passages in Isaiah and in the Gospels, there's, there's the passage in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 4, where it says that in him was life, and that life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness, what? Cannot overcome it. But this is the first metaphor used in all of Scripture to describe God and God's presence as light. And it is that which gave David courage. Now, it's interesting when you study the Septuagint, which is the ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, because it offers an introduction to this psalm, and it points out that David wrote this psalm before he was anointed. Now, that's all it says, but what we will probably suppose is that David wrote this while he was on the run from King Saul, who was trying to hunt him down with his men. And so David's very life was threatened. He talks in here about facing up to his enemies, though though enemies encamp all around me. It talks about enemies in here, and clearly it's talking about when David was on the run from Saul. Uh, In verse 2, it talks about how he's uh, facing violent evildoers. You go to verse 12, and it says that people are lying about me. And yes, all of that was going on at the hands of Saul and his supporters. And yet David cries out confidently, the Lord is my light and my salvation. That is what made him confident and courageous and unafraid. Now, how did David have God as his light? How did he acquire this sense of God's protection, this assurance of the light of his presence. Well, it really began with an intensely personal relationship. Now, we know that David was not perfect by any stretch, but he had an intensely personal relationship with God. You even see that here in verse 1. You see five personal pronouns just in this first verse. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Five personal pronouns. Very important. Very personal, very intense relationship, but not just an intense relationship, really a strong and intense focus. Just a few moments ago, I heard you all singing, I fix my eyes on you. And there's something something about all the days of my life, my my main desire is to gaze upon your beauty. That really comes right out of uh, verse 5 here, gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. And that really is an echo of what Paul, excuse me, what David wrote so long ago saying, this is my my one concern. If you look at verse 4, one thing I ask from the Lord, one thing I ask, David says, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord, you just sang that a while ago, and to seek him in his temple. And it's interesting there where it talks about seeking him in his temple. Now, back then, they did not have a temple, per se. They still had just the tabernacle, which was a tent, and, and you carried it around, but physically at this moment that David is writing this psalm, he is far away from that tabernacle, that holy place where they knew that God dwelt in such a profound way. But it was just a tent, and yet it had such, such a strong focus, such a strong passion about it, and David knew that, and that was his singular focus, was to get back to that tabernacle, to that tent. Now, what's the result of that singular focus? You really find that there in verse 5, if you read with me. For in the day of trouble... He will keep me safe in his dwelling, that is the tabernacle, the tent. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle. There it is. Let me stop there. Again, the tabernacle was just a tent, and yet it really was a fortress in this sense. Back in those ancient times in the Near East, if you were someone's guest and you were invited into someone's tent, yes, just a flimsy tent, if you were invited in there, the host 
took upon this, this really extraordinary responsibility. A mantle was placed upon them, and they were responsible for protecting that person and providing for that person whatever they needed. Whenever they had a guest in their tent, that tent, in a sense, that flimsy tent, became a fortress in which the host would protect and provide for that guest. And David is saying, that is what God does for me when I enter into his shelter. Not, not physically, because he was far from that, obviously, as he was on the run. But when he spiritually enters that tabernacle in, in his mind, in his heart, in his soul, and he's there with God, he is trusting and assured of God's protection. And I love the very last phrase, my very favorite part of this psalm, and there's so many beautiful parts to it, is the latter part of verse 5. He says, he will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high on a rock. A lot of times you and I talk about seeing the forest before the trees. In a sense, David saw the Lord before he saw his enemies. That high view from the rock, it's almost like he had heaven's point of view of the big picture of all things and causing him to ask himself, why am I fearing so much? There's really no need to fear in the long run. Because, you know, and again, it's important to keep in mind that David was well aware of his circumstances. He was very much a realist, not an escapist by any stretch. And yet, during his time of prayer, during his time of meditation, even as he was writing this psalm, it's like God was helping him to rise above his enemies to a higher place, where he could really see the bigger picture and realize that God is in control, that God is the author of all things, and he's privileged to be a part of that, and that God will be with him no matter what comes along. And, and, and again, that's what God does is he can elevate us above our fears if we have that intense, close, focused relationship with him. He elevates us above our enemies. And again, one thing that you really discern as you study this passage is how, I mean, the only way I can put it is how self-centered fear can be. And we all struggle with fear, no doubt. There are things, I mean, if I could ask you immediately, what do you fear? You could probably come up with three things immediately. But again, in the long run, if you look at it logically to its ultimate end, really fear is very self-centered. I am fearing this, therefore I am focused on myself. And when we do that, our enemies win. And I think that's why David is saying, you know what? My one thing to fix my eyes on is to focus on God and his beauty in his temple. And if, like David, we can just go into his house, whether it's here physically or spiritually, wherever we might be, at home, at work, driving somewhere, whatever it might be, if we can just go to his temple and focus singularly and intensely on him. We have no reason to fear our enemies. There's no reason to fear. And we're dwelling in his presence in his house, and we'll do so forever. You, remain, you remember uh, John sixteen thirty three. In the world you will have, it's different translations, you will have tribulation, you will have trials, you will have chaos, In the world you will have battles, but it says, Fear not, I have overcome the world, or be of good courage, I have overcome the world. And God is saying, the victory is indeed mine. You've got battles to face, but the war is already won. Read the book of Revelation. Now, I want to close with a prayer that helps us rise above our enemies. It's very focused, very intense, and it's one I came across just recently. It was written by Max Licato four days after 9-11. And it was something he shared on the radio, and I just thought it was quite, uh, quite moving, and I, and, I, and I just appreciated it, and it, and it kind of helped me consider what I must do to rise above my enemies, and I think, uh, what better day to be reading something like this. This is something he wrote, and it just, it's called America Praise. 
This was obviously in response to the terrorist attack. Dear Lord, we're still hoping we will wake up. We're still hoping we'll open a sleepy eye and think what a horrible dream. But we won't, will we, Father? What we saw was not a dream. Planes did gouge towers. Flames did consume our fortress. People did perish. It was no dream, and dear Father, we are sad. We are sad, Father, for as the innocent are buried, our innocence is buried as well. We thought we were safe. Perhaps we should have known better, but we didn't. And so we come to you. We don't ask for help. We beg you for it. We don't request it. We implore it. We know what you can do. We've read the accounts. We've pondered the stories, and now we plead, do it again, Lord. Do it again. Remember Joseph? You rescued him from the pit. You can do the same for us. Do it again, Lord. Remember the Hebrews in Egypt? You protected their children from the angel of death. We have children too, Lord. Do it again. And Sarah, remember her prayers? You heard them. Joshua, remember his fears? You inspired him. The women at the tomb, you resurrected their hope. The doubts of Thomas, you took them away. Do it again, Lord. Do it again. You changed Daniel from a captive into a king's counselor. You took Peter the fisherman and made him Peter an apostle. Because of you, David went from leading sheep to leading armies. Do it again, Lord, for we need your counselors today, Lord. We need apostles. We need leaders. Do it again, dear Lord. Most of all, do again what you did at Calvary. What we saw here last Tuesday, you saw there that Friday. Innocence slaughtered, goodness murdered, mothers weeping, evil dancing. Just as the smoke eclipsed our morning, so the darkness fell on your son. Just as our towers were shattered, the very tower of eternity was pierced. And by dusk, heaven's sweetest song was silent, buried behind a rock. But you did not waver, O Lord. You did not waver. After three days in a dark hole, you rolled the rock and rumbled the earth and turned the darkest Friday into the brightest Sunday. Do it again, Lord. Grant us a September Easter or a November Easter. We thank you for these hours of prayer. The enemy sought to bring us to our knees and succeeded. He had no idea, however, that we would kneel before you. And he has no idea what you can do. So look kindly upon your church. For 2,000 years, you've used her to heal a hurting world. Do it again, Lord. Do it again. For the victory we know is yours through Christ. Amen. So the victory is his, and only by his grace it is our victory as well. Yes, we have battles to face in the meantime, but the war is over. And his grace that shows us the victory is shown most clearly, I think, not just in the symbol of the cross, but in the symbol of this meal in which we will now participate. Let's have a word of prayer together. Indeed, O oh God, be our light and our salvation. And as we walk toward your light, O oh God, make our relationship with you one that is focused and passionate and yearning simply to be with you and to gaze upon your beauty. For when we do that, we have no reason to fear or despair whatever it is that causes us to be afraid. 
Teach us to do that, O oh God. Discipline us to do that. Inspire us to do that. And may we now, O oh God, be inspired by this meal in which we partake and reflect. And Lord, may we be reminded that as we take the bread and the cup, that it not only speaks to something that was done by your son so long ago, but something that has already been done. That the victory is ours already, that heaven is indeed already celebrating, and that one day we will arrive there as well. And that on one day, that ultimate day of consummation, there will be a victory, the likes of which we could not even begin to imagine. So because of that, we have reason to celebrate the past and the present and the future that this meal means. So help us to do it with a thankful heart and to do so in a way that offers thanks to you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. You're now invited to the table, and the way we always do it in this service is this row can make your way to the wall and come around here, receive the elements, the bread, and the drink. Go back to your seat and take just a few moments of meditation and prayer, and then when you feel led, go on and take, uh, and take the elements in and continue in prayer. Uh, this section here, just come down this row and receive the elements. Same thing over here to the wall and coming around. The table is open and available for you now. Take of the elements, that's fine. Continue to pray. And just when you feel led, go ahead and receive the elements. The rest of us, let's just pray together. Oh God, we thank you for this opportunity to partake of that which speaks to your light, uh, speaks to your shelter, speaks to your assurance, speaks to your protection, speaks to the ways that we can be so confident of your presence in our lives. And because of that, we do not need to be each one of us in here can list very quickly a few things that, that strike fear in us. And yet, oh God, help us to rise above those. Take us to that high rock and help us to have a better perspective of all things. Again, we are in your loving hands, being guided by your loving hand. And so, oh God, help us to be a more faithful people, a more confident people as we try to bring your message and your heaven here to earth. We pray these things in your name. Amen. It's all about trust, and that's what we sing about now. And as we stand to sing, uh, we will uh, offer an invitation where if you feel led to make some type of commitment this day, uh, perhaps to be baptized just as Will was this morning, and you want to make that public or make a first-time profession of faith, we invite you forward to do just that this morning. You simply need to pray with someone. Or as we had someone recently do, if you feel called to some form of vocational ministry, we would gladly uh, hear that from you. I'll be standing at the front to greet you if you feel led to do that. Let's stand together and sing.